Sherilyn, Kensington, C and B scene. We're in a room with a low ceiling. A neon light is flickering. The door is closed on the hubbub outside, and she's sitting across the table from me now. A smallish woman, a little hunched over and nervous looking, twisting a lanyard in her fingers like a rosary, flicking looks at the frosted window, her lips pursed in a sharp face, as if this is some kind of interrogation, a meeting with an official. It's not. I try to let her know that with a smile, by keeping eye contact, leaning closer. Her eyes are inquisitive, clever, kind. We don't know each other, we've never met before, and only just been introduced. Hello, my name is Sherilyn and I am from Queen's Park, she says, quietly and formally. I am originally from the Philippines, and I came here as a domestic worker with diplomats, and I've been enslaved as well. I met my husband here, and he is also having lots of problems. I am the main carer in our house. I care for him, and I care for our little one as well. His name is Matthew. He is two and a half. You're not imagining it. She did just say the word enslaved. I missed it at first because of all I've seen and heard on the way to meet her on a short walk across London, three miles, through some of the richest streets in the world and some of the poorest. Frankly, it's cracked me open. Half a day earlier, three miles south, I'm walking through the streets of Knightsbridge. There's a shift change that happens in the early morning, a security man yawning as he hands over custody of the shop he's paced up and down in all night. A cleaner with a hoover, surrounded by handbags, the price of any one of which would pay her wages for a month. Lorries rush by in the road outside, beating the rush hour. Night workers, blank-faced, wait for the bus, already in their beds, in their heads, while arriving commuters don't seem to notice the silent dance, the state of flux, the changing of the guard, without a word or a nod. And I'm straight through the big doors, right into Harrods, formerly the most prestigious store in the world, the epitome of posh, or it used to be, before it was turned into a temple of bling. Now... New owners are trying to restore the sense of luxury, so in the food hall you can buy a sourdough loaf for 15 quid. Although for that you do get your initials baked into the crust. And in the fridge with the drinks there's a litre of water, harvested from orphan icebergs in the Arctic apparently, but still just water, priced at £85. That's £85 for a litre bottle of natural water. There's no mistake on the label. Someone's prepared to pay it, clearly. But then Harrods is in Kensington and Chelsea, where the seriously wealthy dwell. The average wage among people who live around here is £122,800 a year. Three times as much as the national average. A baby boy born here now, can expect to live to 91. 
which goes to show what decent food and living conditions, good health care and the luck of time and place can do for a boy. Because I'm heading just a little way north across London to a place where families crowd into rented rooms, men and women struggle to get by on the minimum wage or less. Dickensian diseases like rickets and malnourishment persist, and life expectancy falls to just 76, or a decade lower among certain communities. And on the way, I'm wondering, how do we live together? The super rich and people with nothing, and those of us caught in the middle, side by side. A Ferrari moves through the traffic, full-throated, glittering gold in the weak autumn sun. Shoppers with bags from Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent try not to crumple the dresses they've bought, and people look beautiful, well-groomed and on display as they sidestep a man in a wheelchair who's calling out from waist height, wondering if anybody wants to buy the big issue. He's in his thirties, I guess. Dark hair, street punk clothes, a deeply lined face that cracks into a grin when I ask why he's here. More very rich people. Do they buy from him? Some buy and go. And the others don't see me. Whether they're buying or not, whether they're kind and charitable or not, they never really seem to see him, he says. He's the guy in the wheelchair, the big issue seller, the Eastern European with the thick accent. <laughs> and let's be fair, I'm not so sure he sees them either. The encounters are brief. They don't want to be seen. They represent to him the money he needs to make to survive. And if he really stopped for a minute to think about all the wealth that is around him and how much any given individual in front of him really has... It would surely hurt like hell. I know that because I ask him, what about the Ferrari driver? What about that young man behind the wheel in his sunglasses, handsome and happy and maybe worth a million? Can't think about it, he says, and looks away. Why not? He winces. I'd feel like killing him. There's a Jewish philosopher called Martin Buber who talks about two ways of seeing, S and do, let's say it and you. In the first case, if I don't know you and don't want to take the time to know you, but think of you in terms of the job you do, the title you hold, the clothes you wear maybe, or the things you can do for me, I'll be treating you as an object, not who, but what, it I may never even know your name, and yet I do realise that's what I just did with the big issue seller, whose name could have been Clyde, or Daniel, or Sanjay, or Bob, who could have had a PhD in nuclear physics for all I know, but to me, he was a person struggling to be contrasted with an apparently smug, rich young man, and the source of a good quote, not much more. I'm sorry. But there's another way of seeing according to our philosopher Martin Buber, which is all about opening up to one another, asking, listening, learning, daring to show who we really are, being willing to see the other as they really are too. It's incredibly rare, 
and difficult to do and risky in the extreme sometimes, but it's worth beginning to try. And for Buber, to see someone as you, not just it, was a rare and precious thing that gave a glimpse of the divine. As he put it, when two people relate to each other authentically and humanly, God is the electricity that surges between them. If there is a God out there, in here, in me, everywhere, present in the natural world, in every molecule, glance, touch, laugh, sunset, waiting to be noticed, waiting for us to realise, waiting for us to hear the music that plays behind all things that once heard cannot be unheard. And if we are in some mysterious way, as the ancient texts say, made in the same image, then there is a chance that opening ourselves up to each other without defence or pretence may open us up to sharing the divine. Or as Buber puts it, with reference to the Ten Commandments Moses brought down from the mountain, the true meaning of love one's neighbour is not that it is a command from God which we are to fulfil, but that through it and in it we meet God. I'm not sure how that works, to be honest with you. But I do know this isn't a melodrama. The poor are not all bad and the rich are not all good. We're complicated people, all of us. As I'm reminded as I walk on up through Kensington to a room in a private club where a man is waiting with a glass of fizzy water in his hand to talk about how he inherited a fortune and gave it all away. It just felt like the right thing to do, says John who was given £30 million on his 21st birthday and put it all into trust, a charity he did not control. It was in the DNA, he says. John was the heir to a business empire, the son of parents who were passionate and generous about making the world a better place and who spent millions on good causes themselves and who supported his decision, all of which... Sounds ideal, except that John happened to be, in private, secretly, something his parents could not at that time tolerate because it was against their own distinct conservative religious tradition. The pressure was intense because I was gay, he tells me. I mean, I still am. But being gay in the 70s was not easy. There were no positive role models. For the first 10 years of my life, it was actually illegal to be homosexual. I just wanted it to be over. So getting myself obliterated with booze was the best thing. He was only too aware of his privilege, to be fair. I was living in a gilded cage, he says. I would have been unhappy wherever I was because I was fundamentally unhappy. He chooses his words carefully, this private, cautious man who has asked me to keep him anonymous for all sorts of reasons. You wouldn't think he was so wealthy if you saw him in the street. Just another middle-aged man in chinos and an open shirt. Maybe an off-duty lawyer, dressed for comfort, with a haircut that says, just tidy it up a bit, will you? 
But the fund he started at 21 is now worth 150 million. And John's own personal fortune is not far short of that because more money came his way in the 80s through inheritance, yes, but also smart investment. Even then, he was mixed up. When I ask him to describe himself in those days, John comes up with three words. Defiance, belligerence, entitlement. He used drink, drugs, and male escorts to get him through the days and nights, not seeing those who served him as human. I was ruthless in getting my addictive requirements met, he says. If you've got money, it's much easier to call up an agency and get a drug on two legs, as I would call it, and objectify another human being, which is something I'm not at all comfortable with nowadays. It's an extension of room service. You put it outside the door afterwards, but you pay for it. It's not a way to go on. Well, there's an example of treating another person as an object. It's also a life that sounds so isolating. I was incredibly lonely, he says. I realise now that's why so many wealthy people circulate together, sleep together, whatever. It's keeping the group closed. We're actually frightened of other people. It's very hard to know anyone and not think there's a money element involved to it as well. I think that works both ways, John. I've known him for a couple of years since a mutual friend introduced us. I wonder if I should say something. Then I do. It's difficult to know how to be friends with someone if you're only too aware that they could wipe out your mortgage in a moment and barely even notice, I say. Yes, I appreciate that, he says, and his voice is suddenly flat, cold. That is not a revelation to me, it's a lived experience. Well, there goes my chance of a mortgage-free life. I have to say, John is clean and sober, and the many millions he's given away over the decades have done and do extraordinary good across the world. I'm reminded, suddenly, of a scene in a Superman movie, where the cries for help from all around the world are so loud he almost can't respond. And that could be why some wealthy people's response is to shut down and shut it out, because it's just so overwhelming they can't process it. He doesn't believe in quite the same things as his parents did, but he does have a faith of his own that means he can't shut down. I'm still thinking of the big issue seller, though. We both walked past him on the way here. He's not a beggar. He was working for a living. He was keen to let me know that. Also, by the way, his name was George, and he was from Romania, and he was in a wheelchair because of polio. If John wanted to, he could transform that man's hard life in a moment. A thousand pounds would mean little to him, but a hell of a lot to George. Is he never tempted to intervene like that? No. I'm not a magician. There's that flat tone again. Also, it's too obvious doing something like that. There isn't any discretion in it. I wonder what he means. 
John says that if he made one gesture, he would feel obliged to get involved and make sure George had a job, a home, the health care he needs. And he can't do that for everyone he meets on the street. The clamour is overwhelming, he says, that's why I specialise. His charity intervenes in particular communities and goes deep. But I try to challenge him crudely. In this particular case, then, you don't want to take responsibility. I would actually say I'm not responsible for that individual person. We have the remnants of a safety net in our society for people who are more vulnerable. The safety net's failing, I say. It used to be a much better safety net, and I believe it will become that again when people wake up to their social responsibilities and vote accordingly, he says. So I think I'm beginning to understand. John looks through George as he passes because it would be too complicated and painful to do otherwise. If he gave, he would feel obliged to get involved, and there's a safety net anyway, isn't there? And he does his bit already, right? I get that. I use all the same excuses. Still, I insist, he could change George's life in an instant. So could you, he answers. I'm not rich, I say. Maybe not compared to me, but compared to him, many people are, including you. So why don't you do it? Hmm. I suddenly have nothing else to say. I'm walking north now, up past the temples of art, science and learning that are the great Victorian museums and the Royal Albert Hall, where Queen Victoria came in 1867 dressed all in black, still grieving for the love of her life, who had died six years earlier, saying, It has been with a struggle. I have nerved myself to be part of today's event. Don't really think she talked like that. It's my best stab at a queen. Opening in Albert's name a concert hall for the masses, which caused consternation in the times where somebody wrote a warning that the human garbage of the Strand and Haymarket may now be attracted to the comparatively pure atmosphere of these grand, wide, airy streets. So they've been keeping us apart a long time. I'm heading for Sherilyn, although I don't know her name yet, or even that she's there, and she's a mile or more away. And first, I'm meeting a woman who grew up in Iran, before the revolution, under the Shah, when her father was a pilot and life was good, but whose family fled to London and whose teenage years were spent in poverty, until she found her own way forward. Becky heard that Puff Daddy was coming to London and would be in a certain club on a certain night, so she scraped together the money for two bottles of his favourite brand of champagne, walked up to him and said, I am what you need. Whatever else she said or did impressed him, because Becky got a job with Puff Daddy. Then she moved on to become an estate agent and made it to the top of the sales charts in that company and then started her own company, combining concierge services to the likes of Beyonce and Jay-Z with selling homes to the super rich. I'm not your typical estate agent, she says with a laugh. There is 
Unfortunately, a certain type, white, pinky ring, male, they talk at you, never listen. And now she's opening the many locks of an apartment that is for sale at 12.5 million, saying that the client spent a million pounds on the art for the place alone. Don't worry, though, there's very tight security and a lot of cameras. He's watching you right now, she says, and I don't know if she's joking. I'm looking at lemons gleaming in a bowl, all polished and piled up, and Becky says the staff who live here permanently change those lemons at least once a week, so the place is ready whenever the owner chooses to walk in. If they ever do. Aren't these places all empty? I've read that one in five is owned by someone who lives overseas, while just down the road there are people living rough, families in tiny flats, kids in deprivation. Becky says yes, but she's a little bit irritated. What people don't understand is that my foreign buyers get in a black cab or they go into a restaurant, they stay in hotels, they go to the theatre, they spend money. If you alienate those foreign buyers, the property price might become lower. You might be able to move in, but you're affecting the economy as a whole. They're just going to stop coming to London and generate another economy in another city. Maybe. I'm not convinced. But as we talk, I do discover Becky has her limits. We don't accommodate people who request a bedroom with no windows for their staff. We just don't deal with them. I'm sorry? They need to find another agent because I think it's disgusting. She's serious. Yes, when I started my career, staff were put in the worst compromised positions, their passports taken away from them, she says. I had a flat in Mayfair which had two vaults under the pavement. The family said, we are going to put the staff in the vaults. I said, you can't do that. There are no windows. They said, it's fine. We'll just take the doors out and put bars on the doorways instead so there's air coming in. Bars on the doors. I just said, I don't want to deal with you. And those words are still ringing in my ears a mile or two later, after I've walked up through Kensington Palace Gardens, the richest road in England with its armed guards, embassies and supermansions, up through Notting Hill, past the blue door of the flat where Julia Roberts came to stay with Hugh Grant in the movie of the same name, an idealised Richard Curtis kind of Englishness that attracts tourists even now. And up through the Portobello Road market with its antiques, record shops and food stalls. Wandering off track for a moment to stand in a side street and look up at the blackened hulk of Grenfell Tower. Where more than 70 people died in the flames. Thinking about how we all live in separate bubbles now. Seeing only the people we like and who are like us. On social media, yes, and in real life and only dimly aware of other people out there, because although John said it was the rich who huddled together for protection against strangers they did not understand for fear of having what they had taken away from them, in truth, so many of us are like that. But on the night of the fire, the flames lit up the sky and suddenly it was impossible to ignore your neighbour, rich or poor, privilege and suffering were illuminated side by side 
and seen by all. Once you see it, can you really pretend it isn't there? That's a question for all of us. I'm walking under scaffolding on an estate north of Kensington, looking for the room they use as the food bank. It's quite easy to find. Follow the crowd. A dozen years ago, a small charity called Trussell Trust was giving out about 40,000 packages a year to people in need. Three days' worth of food to help them survive. When I did this walk I'm telling you about in 2018, the figure had risen to more than a million emergency packs a year, and people were blaming changes to the benefit system, as well as a struggling economy. And this had all happened under a Conservative government, although in the interest of balance, I should say that some people, particularly Conservative MPs, seemed to think this was a good thing, an example of great British generosity and compassion, charity doing what it should. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the millionaire investment banker turned politician, said it was all rather uplifting. The MP for North East Somerset, who lives in a mansion and has two Bentleys, said it shows what a compassionate country we are. That was before Covid, before lives were lost and businesses blown apart, before the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis, before the cost of living began to soar and soar until people who had thought they were doing okay suddenly had to choose between eating and heating. Now, things are much worse. The inequalities I saw have become more extreme. The need has gone off the scale. And in the year to March 2022, the Trussell Trust gave away not 40,000 emergency packages, but 25 million. And that's not even the full extent of it. Half a million more go out through independent groups. And now I'm at a food bank only three miles from Harrods and the £85 bottle of water. At a time when a single person is expected to live on that much a week, if they can get their benefits at all. Talking to a volunteer who comes here in the mornings to help others who are in need but who is going through so much herself. Sherilyn, I say, I don't want to pry, but did I hear you right? Did you just say you were enslaved? She looks away and nods. I worked for them as a domestic worker, and when they came here, they brought me with them. They promised to pay me so much, but when I was here, they paid me only £200 a month. That's nothing, not enough to live on without them. They also locked me inside the house whenever they went out. Well, it was a flat on the sixth floor. I was locked in every time they go out. I was locked on the sixth floor and I was scared. No bars on the door, but locks, certainly. And Sherilyn was terrified of them and what they would do to her. Also, they had her passport and allowed her visa to expire and said, if you run away, the police will pick you up and deport you and things will be much worse. So that's how they kept her enslaved, until she saw her chance and found the courage. My lady boss, she lost her key, which meant she could not double lock the front door anymore, so she went out and it was not double locked as usual. So I said, maybe it's the time I need to run away from them. 
I was shaking when I came out. I was very afraid. I did not even realize I was hardly carrying anything with me. My luggage is just small luggage. I was hurrying, thinking they would catch me. I was really scared. I was down in the lift and out of the building and out in the street, and I didn't know what to do, how to get away, so they couldn't find me. I kept thinking, they're going to be there. If I go around the corner, I will see them, and I was terrified. I don't know what happened next. I could slow her down and make her tell the story in more detail. But I don't press her at this point. It seems too much like an interrogation. Too cruel. Too intrusive. And she's weeping. Almost weeping. That's what we say for shorthand, but in reality, what is it? Her shoulders are tight and trembling. Her eyes are glistening. Her voice is a whisper. Her breath is shallow. She's twisting and twisting the visitor's card at the end of that lanyard in her fingers like a rosary. And I do not want to distress her anymore. So I let Sherilyn tell this story at her own speed. I went to find somebody from the Filipino community, she says. They told me a charity I should go and see, and the charity referred me to a solicitor, and now my case is being dealt with by police because they are diplomats. It's really complicated. There have been lots of interviews. It's still going on even now. And I don't have my visa, because when I was working for them, my visa had already gone. So I'm not allowed to work. I want to work, but I'm not allowed. There's something in her eyes, in her body language, in her voice, in her determination to get these words out through the choking filters of her fears that convinces me she's for real. I survived, she says simply. And after a while, I met my husband and he helped me a lot. Igor is a builder. He's from Brazil. For a while, things were good, she says. He was earning and we had some money and we had a child. That's Matthew. And then things began to go wrong. Igor became physically ill, and as a result, his company failed. He was not able to manage because of his health, she says. He applied for state help, but found the system harsh. The benefits people asked a lot of questions. They were very tough on us. That's when my husband started to be mentally ill, too. She pauses, lost in thought, and... I wonder what the shadow is that just crossed her face. But before I can ask, she speaks. We lost our other child as well. I had an ectopic pregnancy. I'm sorry, I say. That's horrible. Thank you, she says. He is the one who was more affected by what happened. He doesn't talk. Igor is quiet, but he's... Not focused anymore. Before he was so sharp, he was focused on what he did. But since then, when you talk to him, he doesn't respond. We asked for help at the mental team and they did help. But not really. You need to push to get the help you need. So Igor is not the man she married anymore. Yeah, but he's my husband, you know. Their benefits were stopped for two months. There was a mistake in the benefits paperwork. A glitch in the system. A casual cruelty, like so many others, but devastating to this particular woman and her family. The people who administer that system 
don't see her as anything other than a name on a list. And the people who are making the policies don't see her either, ever. So she was forced to come to the food bank. The first time I came here, I really cried. I was frightened. I was like, what's going to happen to us? How are we going to feed our son? And what were the people like in the food bank? They treated us like family, she says. I get the feeling there's no higher compliment that Sherilyn could give. And now, a few months later, she comes to help out before college. They help me, and I want to help as well. She's taking classes in English, maths and computer science. I'm looking forward to bringing the company back in the future, building it up so I don't need to depend on benefits anymore. He has the knowledge in construction. I will do the office work. That's the future. For now, while he's getting better with the support he needs, I'm going to study. When the situation is overwhelming for Sherilyn or for John the rich man or for Superman, all you can do is what you can do. One thing at a time. Get through. Love and try. Sherilyn has nothing but herself to give. But giving herself here helps her. And I can tell from the warmth in her voice, the empathy in her eyes, the courage in her story and the strength in her presence that just by being here, Sherilyn must help a lot of people. I don't really know her, of course. I can't really see her in the way Martin Buber means. Not in a short conversation like this, which is a transaction, really. She's been asked by the food bank people to tell her story. I want to be able to give some sense of what it's like for her. There's a recording being made. We're both aware it's artificial. And when it ends, we'll both move on. But it's a start, surely. We've got to make a start, haven't we? I ask her about this walk I've been on. I've seen a lot of people with a lot of money, really, really rich people with huge houses. Does she ever think about those people? I think, I hope those people can see what's around them. I know they've worked hard for what they have, she says, with enormous generosity. And they deserve that. But hopefully, they have it in their heart to help as well. Hey, thank you for listening to the story. If you'd like to help, please do get in touch with your local food bank or the Trussell Trust. I know they'd love to hear from you. And so would I, actually. You can get me on social media where I'm Cole Morton or via the website hodderfaith.com because Can We Talk is brought to you by the good people at Hodder Faith. And I'd like to say a few thank yous, actually. 
Firstly, to Emily Jeffrey and Andy Partington for producing and creating sound magic in these podcasts. You have been brilliant, the pair of you, and I'm very grateful for what you do. And then thank you to Andy Lyon at Hodder Faith for commissioning Can We Talk and, well, having faith in it. And to the whole team there who really have worked so hard to get this into people's ears. I'm so grateful. And then, of course, to you. Lovely you. Thank you for lending me your ears and listening to these stories and for responding in the way you have with comments and observations and support and stories of your own. Please keep them coming. I hope there'll be a season three. There certainly will be a book in the spring called Can We Talk, including all these stories and a few more and some further thoughts on it all and what I've learned. If you want me to come and talk to people where you are, and tell some stories and maybe help you to share stories among yourselves, I'd be happy to do that. But in the meantime, it would be really helpful if you could comment or put a review wherever you get your podcast, or just share this thing with your friends to get the word out. Thank you for everything, and let's keep talking. (music) 